This is another iRaw podcast. Ophie, I should be listening to the kids. But I'm listening to you snore. I feel guilty. I've been on my phone a lot. And I've been on my computer a lot. Again, I want to circle back and say that I should be making this apology to my children. But I feel bad because I haven't spent as much time to you. But I want to spend more time with you. And I'll do better. You don't need to hold my guilt. I'm just letting you know. My name is Katya. I believe loving an animal is one of the most available portals for self-healing in the whole world. And I want to be here for you wherever you are on that journey. Welcome to the animal that changed you. Hello, welcome back to the animal that changed you. It's me, your animal loving host. You know what? I was thinking about you today. I was thinking about any of you out there who are listening to this podcast and are considering fostering a pet, and they wanted to say, do it. I mean, of course, you have to check with your family and like your landlord if you rent and get like all the logistics worked out, but I just wanted you to know that I think you should go for it. I wanted to encourage you to open your home and your heart to a pet in need from an animal shelter or a rescue group. Because I think it's important. I think it's an amazing experience. It'll show you a lot about yourself. It'll show you what you're made of. And it'll give you the opportunity to have a really meaningful relationship with an animal who will be forever grateful to you. In fact, I am so passionate about fostering and the benefits that it provides, not only for the animal, but also for you and your family. Um, that if you follow me on Instagram or Twitter at Katia Litsky, um, And if you DM me, I will help you. Wherever you are in your fostering journey, I am so invested in you and I believe you can do it and I will be here for you. And I I really think that fostering a pet is something that we do better together with support and community. So K-A-T-Y-A is my first name. L-I-D-S-K-Y is my last name. Katya Litsky. Like I'm a Russian ice skater. Um, I wish I was. Um, Follow me on Instagram, Twitter, or join our Facebook community. You know that we have a Facebook community called the Animal That Changed You Community for Animal Lovers? Yeah. Anyways, there's all these ways to get in touch. If you foster a pet, we're in touch on social media and DM me for support, I will get your back. I will make the time to support you as much as I can, and you will not have to do it alone. Okay, but you're here today to listen to a guest on our, on this podcast. <laughs> we have an awesome guest today. His name is Henry Mance. He's an author and I have a legitimate crush on his book, which is called How to Love Animals in a Human-Shaped World. And yes, yes, you can have a crush on a book, it turns out. Henry's a delight and um, let's get to it. Well, we begin every episode with something called a geek out minute. So here I go. Henry Mance. I'm going to geek out about you, Henry. Henry Mance, the award-winning chief features writer for the Financial Times, which is what I want to lead with because it's quite incredible to me 
that from there you became the author of an incredible debut book called How to Love Animals in a Human-Shaped World, which I have been singing from the, you know, anyone who will listen, my mailman, anybody will, anybody who wants to know what to read, um, I'm, I'm not ashamed to shout out about your book, and we'll get into why, but you also went to the University of Oxford, and you're also a father to two girls, I believe, um, two girls club over here, me too, and um, you have a British accent, which I just want to say always is something I want to geek out about over anyone, that makes you better than me, um, and um, your book, back to your book, How to Love Animals in a Human-Shaped World, was um, rightly so. Uh, raved by the Times and the Guardian, and it's getting so much attention because of its incredible stance as a journalist, as a person on the journey who did all the things to unpack how we love animals and how we don't. And I'm so um, excited that you wrote this book. I'm so I'm so excited that you have the background you do, which is like rational and financial and not an emotional crazy animal person which i am um and then and yet you're here so thank you for taking the time to come talk to us and tell us how you got here i'm very excited to talk to you oh thank you so much it's uh, yeah i'm uh, very touched by that introduction but um and i hope my british accent doesn't disappoint but it's yeah it's lovely to talk to you and um <laughs> lovely to speak to people who have shared this like journey and you know i haven't um been in it for forever so it's it's um it's lovely to to hear to people to, from people with other experiences you know the reason you mentioned the financial times and part of the reason that um i was able to write about animals at, at first was that you know the newspaper divided up all the you know the other bits of the world uh for other writers you know you, you know the economy politics um fashion they all had people who wrote about them and i saw as a young journalist well look, nobody's writing about animals and i think actually over the past decade we've just realized how much people care about animals you know social media has kind of allowed people to express that in a way that when the news was top down it didn't happen so yeah, yeah i'm a i'm a small i've benefited from that trend as it were yeah, but then you took it a step further. And I don't want to like spoiler alert, but I also want everybody who listens to go out, go out and buy this book. You also went so far as to not, you know, just like not get the information secondhand. You went so far as to take on these jobs working at, you know, a factory farm, working at a fish farm, just setting foot, going hunting, doing the things. You actually did the things, which is um, I think a, a very rare and unique thing to do as an animal lover, and you didn't do it as an undercover investigator, you know, who was going to bust people's chops. You were there to um, to experience it and try to be objective, which I find so brave and so balanced. Um, I'd love to hear if you were hesitant about taking on these jobs and what was it like going home to your family? Just, I'm just so curious about all of it, Henry. No, oh, thank you. Yeah, I, I, I really felt that I'd lived a life which did not, um, did not touch, you know, slaughterhouses, did not touch farming closely. You know, I'd seen it from a distance, and I live, I live in London. I live in a big city, so I see people's pets, and I see you know, uh, wild animals. And I've been lucky enough to go on, you know, uh, eco holidays and take photographs of amazing animals. But I, I really think that our relationship with the with animals at the moment is defined by what we eat in particular. 
And I think until we kind of address that and go looking for what that means, it's really hard to change our, our behavior. And, you know, there used to be obviously um, big meat markets in the center of cities and you would see these animals and there'd, there'd be horses obviously driven in terrible conditions down the streets of of big cities. Um, and that's all disappeared. And I, I think that our real footprint has been removed um, from the places we live. And so we need either to, to do a real leap of imagination or we need to go out and and work in these places and visit these places and 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 just just remind ourselves that yeah your impact on the animal world is not the two or three pets you take care of over the course of your lifetime it's the hundreds or possibly thousands of of animals that will be killed to feed you if you're a meat eater so um yeah i i um i spent some time uh, in a slaughterhouse and on a pig farm and I went hunting and I felt that those were really important things to do. And, you know, I was obviously inspired by other writers who have gone out and done things. You know, I think about George Orwell and, and others. But, um, not, yeah, so I, I always, I, their, their boldness really inspired me. And I think I came home to my, my daughters and um, I made sure I showered a lot before I, I gave them a <laughs> hug, uh, obviously. But, um <laughs> I think for me, like this journey was a journey for them. It was a journey to find what is a good way to live with, with respect to animals. And I feel that my parents didn't didn't give me that. They took me to a zoo. They they um, they had a pet dog. We had a pet dog, but it, there was no real ethos behind it. It was a jumble of contradictions, which I think is what most people live. And I was trying to find this way for my daughters to live with a bit more happiness, a bit more. Um, uh, of a feeling of sense of satisfaction that, that that they were doing the right thing and so i really saw it as a mission for them so i you know although i was seeing horrible things in the day i think when i came home it was nice to it was nice to sort of see why i was doing it and to, to look at my small daughters and all their picture books and all the other images they get of animals and to remember that i wanted to i wanted to match that up to the world they lived in well it's a it's a real testament to you as a writer and um it's no surprise to me that your book was published and is and is being praised because it's a real testament to you as a writer how much that is like sort of the heartbeat of the book. You don't have to talk about your daughters every other page and you don't and you don't need to. We just I don't I don't quite understand how you did it, but you really it is the heartbeat of the book. I feel why you're doing it. I feel this um not a not a urgency, but like I feel the love from a man who wants to do something for the people he loves the most. I, I just feel it. And it's, it's, it's a marvel. It's what I think is the most exciting part of your book. And even in small lines, I, I have it here tabbed, highlighted, and with bookmarks because I made my, my husband's now reading it. And I'm like, these are the pages to pay attention to. I'm a control freak. But you say, um, you say, I just feel numb, a little less human than when I arrived. Um, you're talking about when you worked at the slaughterhouse, the chapter slaughterhouse rules. That's a, such a great example. As a writer myself, I have so much admiration for the way you did this throughout the book, where you found a way to capture why you were doing it, the greater good for everybody, and the experience working with animals all in one line. And you were, you really, really are a beautiful writer. And I just want to take a minute to say that because I, I, I don't know how you did that. Oh, thank you so much. Um, I, I really appreciate that. And it, it means a lot. And I, yeah, I think um, there are different, like, how do you persuade people about, you know, once you come to a conclusion about what you think um, farming is like, or 
what you think uh, the world needs to do to protect the many, you know, wonderful wild animals that we're sadly losing. And, um, you know, there is a sort of, you have to find your voice. I found this really um, a real challenge writing the book to say, you know, what voice do I talk to to strangers in, to the people who are reading this book? I don't know where they're sitting, which country or, you know, what their experiences are. But the voice I decided to, to find was was one that isn't isn't hectoring, that is not um, is not looking to shock or horrify people on every page. And I know there are books out there that do that. But you know, when I have this conversation with people, I feel that I you know I understand why people eat meat, and I understand why people um, manage to push to the back of their mind, you know, the loss of wild spaces, extinction, and all these things and cruelty that goes on. And they're my friends, and you know, so I, I, I don't want to shout at those people. I just want, I, I just want to, to remind them that the model of progress that we've come to, you know, the way we live now, is not working for the all these other sentient beings on this planet, and that those animals feel pain, and that they would feel marginalised. And if we were in their situation, we would feel really agonised by what you know human progress has meant. And I, I, you know, I think loads of things from social media to pharmaceuticals are brilliant things that we've invented and we should be very proud. But I just think it's possible to tweak our model so that, yeah, so I've tried to put humor in there. I've tried not to to make it um, too gory or too um, alarming on every page. But um, I re- I'm, I'm speaking to those people who, who sort of know at the back of their mind that things aren't right and who also would like to maybe cut down on the amount of meat they eat. Um, but aren't sure how or, or haven't quite yet taken the plunge. I believe there's an, there's an, there are open minds there. There's an open door you can push on. Um, but I, I, I also want to, to reassure people that, you know, changing your behavior in these ways or, or, or starting to think about this does not mean that you need to be an animal rights activist from day one, or it doesn't mean you didn't know, don't need to go to some extreme place where you feel uncomfortable. It's really about small steps. It's about a journey and it will make you feel better because you know, we love animals, they give us huge amounts of pleasure and aligning your life with that will give you pleasure too if you if you feel that you're living a good life. And so many of us, I think, in COVID have, have reassessed what what our priorities are. And I would say that feeling that your presence on this planet is a sustainable one and an ethical one is a, is a pretty good place to start. My God, I don't, I could not have articulated it that well, but I couldn't agree with you more. I am... Um, I wanted to start this podcast for so much of the same reasons. You know, I, I even as an animal person, quote unquote, myself, I, I don't like to be shout at, shouted at and I don't like to be um, persuaded with the spirit that someone else is right and I'm wrong. So I wanted to create a welcoming space for wherever you are in your animal loving journey. You talk a lot in the book about accumulation, about a, a, a lot of little things that happen that make you, you know, become more and more... Um, thoughtful of animals, whether it's by being vegetarian or vegan or meatless Mondays or whatever it is, wherever you are at the, at the moment that this podcast is capturing you. But um, it's not one thing. And I wanted to create a space for people to be invited. I think once you identify with something, you can lean into it and grow. And I think your book does a really good job at that. Um, I also want to say that I have had a lot of the same experience reading my kids' books or singing songs to them or watching shows like Bluey. I love the show Bluey. It's dogs. Um, you know, Peppa Pig. It's pigs. Like, I mean, I can just go on and on and on. And I'm like, wow, they're everywhere. Animals are everywhere. There's just this innate love. What happens? What happens? Like, when is that switch? 
um, that, you know, that switch yeah. made where it stops being something that I respect and revere. And I'm curious about how you would feel about your daughters one day if they decide to eat animals or how you feel about going home for the holidays and sitting down and telling your family who may not be vegetarian or vegan that you don't eat a certain way. Like, how do you navigate? I mean, I promise we're going to get to the animal that changed you, but I am really curious about like um, the family dinner, like sitting down at that family dinner. How do you navigate all that? Um, so with with my kids, I, I do see a, um, a day when they are more rebellious than they are right now. I mean, right now they... Um, <laughs> Uh, they are vegetarian. They know they're vegetarian, and they, you know they mostly eat vegan food because I, I I do most of the cooking, um, and they're really happy with that. They sort of they understand that you know, they they love animals or they they um, and you might think there's some brainwashing going on, but I really feel that they appreciate ladybirds and bees and frogs, and they they are very happy and they never miss the taste. Now I'm lucky enough that they're not ter- they're not very fussy eaters or you know mm-hmm. so I don't I don't sort of push parents to do this I don't say there's any warm right way but um, I think it, it is something you can experiment with and just if if you're eating vegetarian food they will do it too I think a lot of even vegetarian parents don't feel brave enough they feel like how can I impose this on my kid and you know my kids enjoy it they love it um, if when they rebel against me look I'm I'm totally resigned to that um, and <laughs> but I. I think you've got to, um, you know, you, you, you if you have values and if you, I think as a parent, you have a responsibility to try and think of what you think is a good life and then to pass that on. And if if the, the your child decides that's a, that's not the right thing for them, then great. But I think the idea that you know meat eating parents or that parents who aren't thinking about these things are not passing on particular values is not right i mean they are imposing values on on them uh, sure. and peter singer who is a you know a great philosopher of animal liberation would say you know most kids um learn to eat meat before they've made a conscious conscious decision that they're okay with it so yeah. at least if my kids eat meat then they will have made a conscious decision that that's what they want to do and i think um uh, that's all I can ask. I, I'm actually going on um, on holiday with my uh, with my wider family quite soon, and we'll have a mixture of diets. There, we'll have vegetarian, we'll have vegan, <laughs> we'll have um, yeah, very meaty to people. And you know, I'm just really happy that in those environments, like when I do the cooking, that I can cook something that everybody enjoys. You know, and like that for me is great to for them to just for me to 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 show that vegan cooking is not what it was in the mid 19th century which is like no mustard no pepper no uh, coffee no alcohol like a real like abstinence of like take out the strong flavors take out anything you know because it was done for different reasons um that's not where and you know vegetarian cooking in the 1970s was pretty different to what it is today and i feel like you know the message spreads slowly and I was actually um, I was I was talking on Twitter to Nigella Lawson, the sh- sh- uh, British chef, Ooh, and yes. she was saying, "Look, when I have vegetarian or vegan people around, I cook um, I cook something that they can eat because for everybody, because food is about sharing." And I think in so many scenarios that that is a real ideal to aspire to. I, I think in reality, you sometimes get in situations where someone's got a nut allergy, someone's on a paleo diet and you're in trouble. Um, you know, you, you can't all eat the same thing. But um, I, I'm, I, I really feel that uh, over the last 10 years, there's an openness to veganism, which didn't exist. 
and um, an openness to, to trying new flavors, trying new things. And I'm sort of so delighted to be part of that. I mean, like a few years ago, my wife said, if you go vegan, it's divorceable. And I really think she meant it. Um, and she was like, it would be such a hassle. And um, I'm, yeah, I've gone vegan and I'm delighted to say we're still married. And like, uh, I, I sort of feel that, um, uh, you know, it's, uh, I know that um, Jonathan Saffron Fur wrote a lot about sort of what, what chicken soup meant to his grandmother, you know, um, and, and I, I, you know, I, I guess we have turkey at Christmas and, well, we had turkey and, you know, or goose. and But but I to be honest, I've never seen... For me, meals are not defined by the food that's served. I think this is a very weird um, thing that we've got into about certain foods having particular associations with masculinity. And um, I mean, we're so divorced from, you know, what you order in a restaurant or what you serve up. I mean, it's not like you've gone out into the field and and, and sort of uh, harvested it or, or killed it. I, I think it's... I think it's all a bit weird. I mean, like meals for me are defined by the atmosphere that people bring. And if like, whether you're having a bean burger or a beef burger, I mean, like that shouldn't say anything about your masculinity or about whether you love the traditions of your family. So I, I think I'm a bit, I'm a bit dismissive of the idea that it affects my, my core identity just to eat something different. I would, I would say to people who are worried about giving up meat or giving up dairy, you're the same person, you know, you're the same person. You just feel a bit, ba- a bit happier about your impact on the planet. You know, you don't, you don't suddenly shrivel into a um, into a, uh, someone else. Mm-hmm. I'm 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 not. I would never tell anyone what to write, Henry. I am going to vote that this is the this is the subject matter of your next book. As a Cuban Jew, as a Latina Jewish woman, we are at breakfast talking about lunch and dinner. There is such a focus on food; it is an absurdity. Love my family. Shout out to my family for listening. I My mom sends me more turkey burger recipes than I know what to do with. I haven't eaten animals in such a long time. She's like, but it's turkey burger. <laughs> I, I'm not, I don't know how to explain. I don't know how to unpack it. So I, it is, it, I'm, it's a paradigm shift that I am very interested in hearing more about and very grateful to you for bringing up this idea that regardless of what your cultural <laughs> experience is, Food doesn't have to be why we sit around a table and it doesn't have to be a big deal. It can be so much more about where we are and who we're with and the conversation we're having. Really healthy, really healthy mindset. I, where were you the past 40 years of my life? No. Um, I, it's really interesting. I mean, I, I just think that there's like a, yeah, it's interesting. I, I feel like certainly my parents' generation, the, just the priorities were different, you know, and like yeah. this idea of, I mean, there's so much terrible information around about food, like this idea of like fat free, which led to people eating far too much sugar, you yeah. know, in their yogurt and things. Or, I mean, this idea of like, you've got to eat more protein. Protein is necessarily good. I mean, like, I, people in our countries eat twice as much protein as they need. So, you know, you don't need to have lentils for breakfast if you're not eating steak. I mean, like, so I, I, I really, I really think we need to rethink how we how we eat, and it goes beyond meat. It goes to like uh, processed foods and ultra processed foods. And I, it would, I for me, it would be a real shame if we got bogged down in in tradition. I, I, I don't see that. Um, and also, the, I guess the other thing, I, I, you know, when I was a teenager, I lived in Mexico for a few months, and you know, there we had beans and tortilla and and chili, you know, every day for lunch, and mm. it was pretty stodgy. And like 
now I go to the supermarket and there is every flavor under the sun. And I think like if you cut out a couple of flavors or a couple of tastes, you still have so much here. There is so much. um, This idea of like, if we cut out, you know, the taste of pork or even the taste of cheese that, you know, how can you possibly live a good life? It just seems to me alien. It seems to me forgetting the abundance that we have and the, you know, all the development over the past decade to bring flavors from around the world. Yeah. You say vegetarianism, vegetarianism. I don't, I think you said vegetarianism. I'm sure you meant veganism as well. It's a presence, not an absence, which I was like, I mean, again, just total paradigm shift. Um, I do think it can be threatening to people, but it doesn't have to be. Okay, truly, although I could talk to you for 15 hours, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back to hear more. Now, I know I'm your non-agro animal person, but I still got to do right by the animals, you guys. If you're thinking about vegan cooking and how you can make some delicious, exciting recipes that are vegan, check out Spork Foods. Spork Foods is run by Jenny and Heather. They are sisters and co-owners of Spork Foods. Um, They make vegan cooking just so much fun and exciting and delicious. And they're bright lights who are wonderful to be around and to cook with. Whether you want to do a virtual cooking class or maybe a private cooking instruction for you and your partner, you and your family, cooking parties for birthdays, bachelorette parties, corporate team building events, so much more. Check out their website and you're going to be blown away by the good food that you're going to make with them. Welcome back to The Animal That Changed You, friends. I'm here with Henry Mance, author and journalist. Do you have pets at home now? I think you have a cat, maybe more than one cat. I'm not sure. And did you have pets growing up? It's a two-part question. Yeah, I had a, I had a, um, we had a dog growing up who was a Norfolk Terrier and um, was the runt of the litter and 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 sort of uh, you know really struggled with arthritis and in later years. But it was an absolutely lovely, lovely dog. And now we have a cat who um, we got from a rescue and um, is uh, absurdly affectionate and. You know, I, I, I really part of my message in the book is that we love animals, and a lot of that is lip service. But with our pets, it's clearly not. I mean, Americans spent more than a hundred billion dollars on their pets last year. I mean, like people go without so they can pay their their pets' medical bills. I mean, this is all you know, uh, Instagram accounts for your dog, all of this stuff. Um, you know, socializing with people so that your dogs can meet up. It's all it's all happening, and that. You know, we've got to stop these categories which say that these are the animals that have feelings or these are the animals that matter. Because, you know, really a farm animal and a cat or a dog, we're talking mammals often with very similar social needs and cognitive needs, uh, cognitive abilities, sorry. Um, And so I really want to... those animals, those pets we have to be a springboard for, you know, our wider sort of sensitization and our wider reflection on on what we want our impact to be. Um, My uh, my cat was there when I was typing this book, lying across um, my arms and like lying across this keyboard in front of me. And I I know that, you know, we've got to do scientific research on why why cats do this, but I think it's uh, a, a very clever cry for attention. But it's sort of uh, occasionally I would get a kick in my forearm, which would just remind me of of, of why I was doing this. And uh, yeah, I, 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 you know, like many people, I was always like, um, well, firstly, I thought, wow, wouldn't it be amazing to be a cat? You know, no school, no work. You know, when I was when I was younger, and then um, I think you know, like I've been through that phase of 
what are what are they thinking? You know, if I walk, if only I could know what she was thinking. Yeah. And like, um, and now I think I'm just more reflective about. Um, I, th- I think some parts of pet ownership really saddened me, like some of the pedigree breeding and some of the desire that they should live on our terms and they should be accessories to our lives. And I think there's also something that we need we need to reflect on about how we respect animals as as their own creatures and just how we give them chances to determine their own lives. And yeah. So um, yeah, letting them be individuals. That's a big one for me, you know, letting them be, I, I had a, I've had a lot of fosters and right. I was never able to lobotomize any of them. They just are who they are. We did training. We did the best we could. We rose to our potential each one at a time, but you know, chili bean, was still little cuckoo bananas. She was just a cuckoo bananas cattle mix, like cattle dog mix. It's just who she was, you know? It's just um, more of a allowance for that animal to be who they are. And then we get to be who we are too. It's really, really nice. So it's who do really you have now? Nice. Well, right now I have Ophelia, which you were talking about, you know, those crazy Americans who have um, Instagram accounts for their animals. I mean, this crazy American started a podcast because of her love for her dog. So whoops. My beagle mix is my first rescue and she's uh, about 17. She was a parvo puppy. So I adopted her as a puppy really sick and, and I've had her my whole, you know, her whole life, 17 years almost. And um, I'm obsessed with her, Henry. I, I have no shame letting you know that I'm obsessed with her, but she is so old and frail right now that I am not fostering, which also feels weird. I like having, I like having a new energy, a new personality around. I was thinking about asking you which animal changed you. And then I was thinking, well, he wrote this book and that might be an unfair question because Ophelia changed me, but you know, she also allowed me to open up my heart, my spirit to be able to be changed by all these other animals that followed. Um, So it's, it's sort of an unfair question to a, a person who really has a reverence the way you do, but I want, I want to know if there is an animal that you can sort of trace back as like the one who sort of started it all. Yeah. You know, well, I'm going to choose a slightly, um, odd one. I'm not going to choose one of my pets, even though like, um, you know, I'm obsessed with my cat and, uh, uh, I think I say in the book that, you know, until my kids were born, like half the photos on my phone were my cat, you know, like, and I was like, maybe I'll just get a different angle now. Or she's looking particularly cute. And, uh, that is obviously, um, great, but, uh, yeah, it's, um, and then you like, the weirdest thing is when you show, you show these photos to other people and you don't get why they don't like, uh, they don't really go for them. And you're like, but my, it's my cat. You know, my cat is amazing. Um, so um, I'm not going to get, um, I think there are phases in your life where you, you know, you were confronted with animals, you know, like when you were a kid, the storybooks, the comics. And then I think there's a, a period where they sort of go, they just become a bit more distant unless you make real efforts. And I was thinking that when I, when I lived in Colombia in South America, um, we used to go on, you know, Colombia is an amazing country, Pacific, Atlantic coasts, you know, mountains, jungles, uh, uh, plains. So you really like the wildlife is incredible, more bird species than any other country. Um, but we went to um, the farm of former drug lord Pablo Escobar and where he kept uh, some African wildlife that he'd had imported. Where you see, so he was long dead and his farm is there to visit. And actually when he was a drug lord, one of the ways he sort of um, ingratiated himself with the 
local people around the city of Medellin was um, to allow them to come and see his animals. I think for like some nominal fee, they could drive around his, his farm. But after he was killed and after the farm went into ruin, you know, the animals there were neglected and in particular, a couple of hippos that he brought over. And these hippos went on um, to to sort of quite enjoy life in in uh, just by the river in Colombia and the, these wetlands. So they uh, they multiplied, and w- we went to visit. This would have been somewhere around two thousand and ten, and there were uh, dozens of hippos by then um, visible. And there was one in particular who'd been found in a, a nearby pool. Uh, a, a young um, female, and she'd been abandoned by her mother, it seemed. She was called Vanessa. They'd called her Vanessa. And she was there, um, and you were able to feed her carrots and also spray her with a, a sort of a hose. And she would she would absolutely delight in this hose and then del- love it if you sort of gave her a bucket of carrots. And, you know, the hippo... Uh, well her mouth opened like brilliantly like this all these teeth this huge tongue and it was almost like her eyes could no longer see whether you were putting uh, carrots in her mouth so then she would be all confused and sort of close her mouth again and be like what 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 are you are you you really are you having me on here are you giving me carrots and and for me I guess this was a stage where animals were not a big part of my life you know like I I drifted away from them slightly and I drifted away from being sensitized to like their consciousness and their experience of the world and I think in some ways Vanessa just became a reference point with for my wife and and, and I or for my wife and me of of like how amazing the animal world is and how like different the experiences are and then I think it's a very short leap to say, hold on, we get so much from these creatures. What can we give back? And I think I've seen that, um, you know, with hippos, but with orangutans and other animals. But Vanessa, I think, was the one that I would joke about for months afterwards and years afterwards. And we've got a photo of her on the fridge downstairs. And I think she kind of, uh, she may well have been a big part of me, like, really throwing myself into these things. So thank you very much to Vanessa. And um, I'm so glad that uh, the Colombian um, wetlands agreed with her. her um, and, uh, you know, because obviously, like, in an ideal world, Pablo Escobar would not have shipped hippos across from Africa to Colombia. But, sure. Uh, yeah, Pablo but Escobar does not exist in a real, real uh, an ideal world. So, um, so, you know, we made the most of it. Um, but yeah, that, that's it for me. I, I mean, it, it, I know now after trial and error of hearing my own voice on a podcast, which is, by the way, a real act of grace for oneself, how annoying it would be if I squealed right now the way I want to squeal. I'm holding it in. I'm squealing inside. <laughs> Every cell inside of me is squealing right now, but I'm going to spare listeners. Never in my wildest dreams did I think. I thought you maybe were going to say your cat, who I want to say is Crumbs, but that's not her name, uh, right? Crumble. Crumble. Yeah. Crumble. I wasn't that far. Okay. I thought maybe the zebrafish at the at the lab, I know that they had a, an impact on you. And I, I wasn't I wasn't sure. The, the the above and beyond my wildest dreams answer of Vanessa the hippo <laughs> is not something I can put into words. I have never wanted to be a carrot so bad. I would love to be a carrot and go down in there, that big chomper, and just I just I want to hold her, <clears throat> her in my mind. 
it was not something we were expecting either in that way. And I think that's what, you know, the, the, it, sometimes you just need to be out of your rhythm to really see what, you know, what, what we live next to and what we, yeah, uh, what mm. we're lucky enough to share a planet with. Mm. Henry, how do you see a balance or overlap between the financial world, the world of money, the world you know, and animals? This is a big question, I know, but how do we make something we're passionate about, something that's compassion-based and necessary, a matter of finances and, and, and benefit? Yeah, I think, um, I think like, Animals are being taken more seriously. Like, I, I'm not, I'm not going to lie to you. I mean, people have said, you wrote a book about animals? Why? I mean, like, you're like a... I, I covered politics for a long time in, in Britain. I, you know, wrote about the economy and things. And, you know, why aren't you writing about, like, uh, something more serious? And for, for me, this is serious. So, like, n- no thanks. But, um, I, you know, I think there are huge um markets there and i'm so excited that people are investing in like alternative proteins so we don't rely on factory farming that you know pet care is a massive industry and i think that will have to be looked at so that you know pet owners do not get exploited because people are willing to spend so much on their their animals that there needs to be some kind of um, oversight to make sure they're not they're not screwed effectively and people aren't taken advantage of um so I think, you know, I think there are big industries there which need to be taken seriously. And like, clearly our impact on the planet is um, so vast and so unsustainable that, you know, if you want to, if you want to do any industry, um, then you need to be bearing in mind, you know, protecting of ecosystems, protecting of space for wild animals. In this book, I've tried to sort of simplify the conservation message, which I know, you know, people hear lots of things about plastics, about fertilizer runoffs, um, about climate change, all those things. And I think they're, they're all very serious issues. I think sometimes it's, it's forgotten that really what wild animals need on this planet is space. You know, that's what really determines their survival. That's why um, so many animals are being pushed off this earth. And for me, the problem with our economic model is that it's built around relentless physical expansion of, you know, agriculture, of you know, demanding more things. Amazon is an incredible company. It just supply that has made it even easier to just get stuff and not worry about the where it comes from or what you know what in, environmental conditions it was it was produced in. So I think you know part of my book is about shrinking our footprint and saying like we don't need all these things. And um, I yeah I, I I don't I don't know whether you can have the levels of economic growth we've had and protect the animal world, I, I, yeah. I sort of doubt it. But I, I think we, you know, we need a very different model. And so, yeah, I'm slightly going against the, the simplistic, um, the simplistic sort of world that, yeah, greed is good, that growth is good, that, you know, we need limits on those. And I, 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 you know what, actually people have this cold idea of like people who work in finance, people who work in, in business, but they get it. You know, they get it. They, they go to places where nature's being destroyed. They know where water shortages are. They love animals too. They have pets. I'm very powerful and rich people seem to have dogs more than cats, but I'm, I'm not sure what the psychology is. Uh, <laughs> but like, I, I, I'm often sort of surprised that, you know, this message is not just something that a few people who are mad about um animals can can get onto i really think like most people have an animal they feel very passionately about and understand that our model is not working 
I mean, whether they whether they're prepared to act on it is a different question. But I really feel like we shouldn't feel so negative about our message. We, it shouldn't feel like oh, I can only talk to certain people or it'll be embarrassing. I mean, the Queen has corgis, for goodness sake. I mean, like, you yeah. know, it, we've... Um, so, you know, if, that, if that's fine at that level, then um, then I think there's no, there's, no, there's no room in the world where you can't talk about animals and, and be taken seriously. Yeah, and I, I think you make a very good point and, uh, about in your book about how conservation and animal rights don't have to be separate camps, which I found fascinating and didn't really know was, was such a schism. But what you're saying now about how... Um, and it has been my experience that all these industries, all these businesses, they're all at play in the animal world too. It's a small, it's a, it's like a petri dish for all the larger issues, and those are larger issues involve animals. It is connected. It is, it's not separate. Those industries affect each other. Those things sort of fly in tandem. Um, and I see it when I volunteer at the shelter. I see. I know you were a political correspondent. I see politics at play. I see money at play. I see socioeconomic at play. It, you're you're right. It's not silly or dumb or separate. We yeah we have um I mean in the UK we have a, 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 a like a bill going through the Parliament which is about recognizing animal sentience and mm. and like recognizing animal sentience is a kind of symbolic thing but it paves the way for lots of actions around which animals are kept in zoos under what conditions what animals can be farmed and like the government is fairly progressive about this but it's coming from a government which is like a center-right government and actually some of the people who support it i was reading some some stuff at the weekend are like people who are not um you know um your normal your typical liberals you know like this has really across the board resonance and so it really gives me confidence that you know, you can introduce this. And although, you know, meat eating tends to have been more popular amongst conservatives than among liberals, or at least vegetarianism seems to be more of a, a, a liberal thing. You know, it's not it's not preordained. You know, there is a sensitivity. Yeah. And uh, so I, I feel optimistic that this is something that doesn't have to get caught up in a culture war. I um, am going to piggyback on your optimism I am so excited to read everything else that you write and to support you. And I'd love to tell our listeners how they can support you. Where can we find you? Where can we, you know, buy your books, love you up and cheer you on as you um, do the great work you do? Oh, Katya, thank you so much. Um, I, you know, the book is in um, hopefully all good bookstores, but certainly Barnes and Noble and um, and Amazon. Uh, <laughs> and I would love it if people read it. There's an audio book, um, an ebook, and, um, yeah, I'm on Twitter a lot uh, at Henry Mance, and um, I try and sort of do, uh, keep stuff lighthearted, but occasionally throw in uh, something uh, deep about <laughs> animals, and uh, you know, other not get too depressed watching uh, uh, wildfire videos from the American West, which uh, I think is tragic. But um, but yeah, please come and find me there and, and shout at me and let me know what you know uh, think of the book. And you know, I spend a lot of a bit more time on Instagram at Henry underscore Mance, trying to understand because. You know, that that's where I really just feel you like all this pent up love we have for animals. That yeah. It was pent up for years and decades because you couldn't you couldn't shout it out like on social media. It just flows out. And I so I don't I you said I was making fun of uh, people with uh, dog Instagram accounts. That's not it. That's not it. I just <laughs> it's the first step. I just mean like. I love the fact that you have an Instagram account for your dog. And what I want is for that to be the first step for us sort of reassessing how we care for the animal world. 
I am with you on that. And and if I just may request a Vanessa or Vanessa too, if she has gone to her final resting place, you know, I would I would stalk that Instagram account. I'm just gonna <laughs> throw that over there and I'm gonna thank you a thousand more times. You have a friend and a fan here and that you chose to spend time and make time to talk to us means the world. Oh, likewise, Katya. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks to all your listeners. Thank you all so much for tuning into The Animal That Changed You, a weekly podcast that features extraordinary people talking about the extraordinary animals that changed their lives. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave a review. Search for us on Instagram at The Animal That Changed You or on Twitter at T-A-T-C-Y podcast and tell your friends. And if you've got a story about an animal that changed your life, tell me about it. Message me, tag me. I would love to hear. I appreciate you. I love your animals and I'll see you next time. For more great iRaw podcasts, visit iRawPod.com. That's I-R-O-A-R-P-O-D dot com.